Tonight's scripture reading will come from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the wall of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Good evening and welcome to our Sunday night service. We're grateful for your presence, and as always, if you're visiting, we do invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. It has been a very beautiful Lord's Day. We're grateful for the opportunity to be together. We have a number of folks out tonight. I'm not sure what all of the reasons are, but we do have some away. Some are sick, and we do want to continue to remember them in our prayers. We're going to be talking tonight about the Bible. And really what we want to focus our minds on for the next few moments has to do with building our faith in the Bible. Now somebody might ask the question, why do we need to talk about building our faith in the Bible? There are probably any number of reasons that we could give in response to a question like that. But I would begin by pointing out that in our society today, there have been any number of individuals that have attacked the veracity or truthfulness of the book that we call the Bible. There are many individuals in our world today that scoff and ridicule the book that we call the Bible. And yet, Paul said in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is imperative that we trust our Bible, that we believe that the claims that are made in this divine book are indeed true. I think about young people today especially those who are in universities across our country. And in many of those universities, they have literally become a breeding ground for atheism and agnosticism. The atheist says there is no God. The agnostic asks the question, how can we know if there is a God? And yet the Bible says there is a God. I really believe that we can view creation Creation itself is evidence for God. The Bible says in Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. And then the psalmist said in Psalm 14, verse 1, In light of the evidence that we have before us, the fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. E.H. Imes has called the Bible the world's greatest religious collections. Did you know that the Bible was penned over a period of about 1,500 years by approximately 40 different writers? These writers represent nearly every social and economic plane. Some were shepherds, some fishermen, some servants or exiles in foreign lands. Others were leaders, scholars, and kings. In this lesson, what we want to do is note how the Bible can build our faith because what we want to do is build our faith in this book. 
the book that we call the Word of God. There are three things that I want us to think about tonight in our study. The first has to do with the inspiration of the Bible. And really, this is where it all begins, because if you do not believe in the inspiration of the Bible, then you have, prob- you have problems right off the bat. The passage that was read a moment ago from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where Peter said, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. And what Peter is saying there is simply this, that the Word of God did not originate with mankind. It's not something that man thought up or conjured up. For he said, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. And then also in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul affirmed all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped or thoroughly furnished unto every good work. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the saints in Ephesus, he talked about how he had received revelation from God. And he said he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words, whereby when you read, he said, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, Paul said that the things that he wrote were the commandments of the Lord. I would challenge you to begin in the book of Genesis and go forward And note the numerous statements made relative to the fact that God said this or God spoke that or God commanded this or that. Haggai in the long ago, and Haggai was a prophet who encouraged the people of God to finish rebuilding the temple after it had been destroyed. God's people had been swept away into 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And for whatever reason, they had become lethargic in the rebuilding process. And so Haggai sought to encourage the people to finish the project. And he said in Haggai 1 verse 13 that he was the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. What about the inspiration of the Bible? Did you know by way of accuracy that in the late 1800s, Sir William Ramsey, a scholar, who was skeptical of the authenticity of the book of Acts, set out upon an archaeological expedition in Asia Minor with the declared intention of disproving the historicity and accuracy of Luke's narrative. After years of research, literally digging up the evidence, Ramsey was forced to conclude that Acts was historically accurate. In Acts, Luke mentions... 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 Mediterranean islands. He also mentions 95 persons, 62 of which are not named elsewhere in the New Testament. And his references, where checkable, are always correct. And you can begin looking at the Bible and you can look at what is said geographically or historically or even scientifically. And you'll find out that what those inspired writers penned 
has come to prove to be correct. By way of scientific foreknowledge, it was Isaiah who said in chapter 40, verse 22, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. The reference here is to the spherical shape of the earth. There was a day and time in which many people had the idea that the earth is flat. Well, that has proven to be wrong. As a matter of fact, I think about those that have had the opportunity to go into outer space and to look back at the spherical shape of the earth and to recognize that the words of the inspired writer that he hangs the north on nothing are indeed inspired and true. I am told that if you go some 60 miles above the earth's atmosphere that you can, you can see the, sphere, the spherical shape of planet earth which would be some 300 to 350,000 miles above planet earth itself. What about the impartiality of the Bible? We think about the inspiration of the Bible. We understand that both the Old and the New Testaments are inspired of God. As a matter of fact, in relationship to that, we noted just a moment ago, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Peter chapter 1, we think about the words of David in 2 Samuel chapter 23 at verse 2 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was on my tongue. This is the word of God. But what about the impartiality of the Bible? Have you ever paused to think that the flaws and frailties that are revealed in the Bible are done so without compromise, concession, or apology. If you and I were writing a book about ourselves, or if we were going to sit down and write a narrative about our friends or family members, it might be the case that we would leave out those things that are distasteful. It might be that we would minimize our faults, our frailties, our shortcomings. But such is not the case when you talk about the Bible. For example, Abraham. In James chapter 2, verse 23, Abraham is called the friend of God. And yet, at least two times in the life of Abraham, he was said to have lied about the relationship he sustained to Sarah. The first example of this, or the first instance of this, is found in Genesis chapter 12. When Abraham went down into the land of Egypt, and there he lied to Pharaoh. The second occurrence is found in chapter 20, where Abraham again lied about the relationship that he sustained to Sarah. He lied this time to Abimelech. But think about it. Here is Abraham, a man who walked by faith. He's listed in Faith's Hall of Fame. He is called the friend of God. He was ultimately the channel through whom the Messiah would emerge, the father of the Hebrew nation, the very one that God said in Genesis chapter 12 at verse 3, that in you all families of the earth will be blessed. And yet his frailties, his shortcomings are noted. And then also we think about David. David is called a man after God's own heart. 
And yet when you read in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, you find that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. David not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but the text tells us that he sought to cover up or conceal the deed. His efforts were such that he had Uriah the Hittite, the husband to Bathsheba, killed on the front line of battle. Now, we reflect back on the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness, etc. David was a king. As a matter of fact, David was the second king over the United Kingdom. His son Solomon later followed him. And then following Solomon, we find Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The kingdom split. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But nonetheless, David, as the king of Israel, was to have been very knowledgeable and mindful of the law of God. God had said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that they were to teach their diligent, they were to teach their children to observe the commands of God diligently. They were to be well acquainted with what the Bible had to say. Did David know the law of God? Was he mindful of the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. But nonetheless, his frailties, his sinfulness is pointed out by the inspired writers. And then also we think about in the New Testament, James and John. James and John, they occupied a very important place in regard to the disciples of our Lord. They, along with Peter, formed the inner three. Apparently, they had a very special, a very close-knit relationship to the Lord. They had the privilege of going with the Lord up on that mountaintop and seeing him transfigured. And God, on that occasion, said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him, in Matthew 17, verse 5. They had the opportunity to go with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying about the cross that he would bear for the sins of humanity. But did you know, Luke records in chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, the occasion where these two men wanted to destroy a Samaritan village because the people there rejected the Lord. Here again, the frailties of mankind. We think also about the Apostle Peter. Peter was one of the great men that we read about in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, he had the opportunity to preach the first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost Day in the city of Jerusalem. And yet Peter did what? He denied the Lord, just as Jesus had prophetically stated. And you can read of that in Matthew 26, verses 69 through 74. What about Judas Iscariot? Judas was one of the 12 original disciples. And yet the Bible tells us that Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And so we think about the impartiality of the Bible. The Bible does not conceal or cover up the flaws and the shortcomings of mankind. But then also I want you to think with me for just a moment 
about the indestructibility of the Bible. The late George Dehoff made this observation. Let the skeptics attack the blessed old book. It will be higher when they finish. There are examples in days gone by of individuals that have sought to purge the Bible from our fingertips. For example, there was a man by the name of Jehoiakim, and he is referenced in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 36, verses 21 through 29. Jehoiakim tried to destroy the Word of God by cutting it with a penknife. He sought to destroy the Word of God because he did not like the prophecy that had been given relative to the destruction of Judah by Babylon. Now here's a question. Was he successful or does the Bible live on? You know, there are people today that because they don't like what is said in the Bible, they do what Jehoiakim did. They seek to just sever those parts of the Bible that they're uncomfortable with. Jehoiakim tried to destroy the word of God. Jeremiah began prophesying on the eve of Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah was saying that you're going into 70 years of captivity. The prophets of old, that is the false prophets, they were saying, peace, peace, when Jeremiah said, there is no peace. Jehoiakim was a man who literally sought to destroy the word of God. And then also there was a man by the name of Diocletian. He was an emperor in Rome in the 4th century. It is said that he took great pleasure in the burning of every copy of the scriptures he could get his hands on. He even erected a monument over the ashes of burned Bibles with the inscription, Extinct is the name of Christians. Now you just think about a man like this, who has done everything within his power to destroy the book that we call the Bible. And yet here's a question. Was he successful in destroying the word of God or does it live on? You can go back and read about the Roman emperors. There was a man by the name of Domitian who lived in the latter part of the first century. As a matter of fact, I think Domitian was on the throne when John wrote the Revelation. Domitian demanded to be called Lord and God. He was a pagan emperor. And really, when you read the book of Revelation, the whole thrust of Revelation is hold on and go on because ultimately God's people will be victorious. Do you think that Domitian would have wanted the revelation to have been circulated among the people of God in the first century? You better know he didn't. And yet the word of God lives on. Another man, Voltaire, who lived from 1694 to 1778. He was a French infidel who made this prideful statement. 100 years from... 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by a curiosity seeker. He also said, it took 12 men to start Christianity. One will destroy it. Now you just think about the pride and the audacity of making a statement like that. Bear in mind, he made this statement almost 300 to 400 years ago. Was he successful in destroying the Bible or does it live on? 
It is reported that only 51 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used his press and his house to produce stacks of Bibles. I ask you, was he successful? Absolutely not. And then there was Robert Ingersoll, who was an American agnostic, and he made this statement. In 15 years, I will have this book in the morgue. You see the idea here, there are people that have sought in days gone by to stamp out this book we call the Bible, the Word of God. And again, the question is posed, was he successful? Was he able to eradicate the Bible from human hands? Well, of course, the answer would be a resounding no. Try as they may. Infidels have been unsuccessful in their feeble attempts to eradicate the Word of God from human hands. And I think the reason is summed up in the fact that God in His providence has preserved this book that we call the Bible. It will, as Jesus said, endure forever. Bernard Ram, who was a very scholarly individual, has written these words. Not only has the Bible had to run the gamut of centuries of transmission, but it has been from time to time and place to place vigorously persecuted. It has been banned, burned, and outlawed from the days of the Roman emperors to present-day communist-dominated countries. But here again, all efforts to stamp out the Bible have been unsuccessful. No other book has been so persecuted. No other book has been so victorious over its persecutions. It is the martyr among books and always rises from the pool of its own blood to live on. I think he's exactly right. Now, there are going to be people that have come along if the earth continues to stand. Who, like these men in days gone by, will try to remove the Bible from the hands of people? They will do everything within their power to destroy the truthfulness of what you and I believe and practice in this book that we revere as the Bible. Isaiah said in the long ago, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah chapter 40 at verse 8. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. Matthew 24, verse 35. Peter said that we have been born again not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. The indestructibility of the Bible. A lot of people tried to destroy this good book. There have been a lot of people that have done everything that they could within their power to undermine its existence. But all have failed. Peter said, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What are you and I to make of the Bible? What conclusions are we to draw from this book that we call the Bible? When we talk about its inspiration, when we think about how the Bible presents unto us the faults and the frailties of man without any kind of excuse, without any type of glossing over, very impartial, 
And then we think about the indestructibility of the Word of God. What can we conclude? Well, the only conclusion that we can come to is simply this. That this book that we hold in our hands should be treasured. Because as Peter said in the long ago, it is, or it offers unto us, the words of life. You and I today, we have to draw our own conclusions about this book. I think about how every generation, every individual has to take the Bible. That individual has to begin going through the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. They have to understand that there's a distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the patriarchal period, the Mosaic Dispensation, and the Christian Dispensation. That today we are under the law of Christ, and by the law of Christ we shall be judged. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. We have to take this body of evidence. We have to assimilate each and every precept in this book. And then we must begin to draw our conclusions. Do we believe that what this book says is true? It's not enough, as some people have done in days gone by and do today, to merely wave off the Bible as a book of fiction. Many of us have heard of individuals that have read the book of Genesis and they just wave their hand and say, well, it's just a myth. Or they talk about the Noahic flood and they laugh. They scorn what Moses has recorded about the flood. They say it wasn't a universal flood. Well, you and I, we must take what we read in this book and we must decide for ourselves. Now, here's the key. What you believe about this book will impact where you spend eternity. If you believe this book to be the Word of God, and it is, my advice would be to take what this book says and follow it. Do not add, do not add to it. Do not take from it. As John said in Revelation chapter 22, we must honor the precepts of this book. Jesus likened those who hear his words and do them unto a, unto a wise man. He said those who hear his word and do not put them into practice, he said they are foolish. If what this book says is true, you need to follow it. You need to live by it. To our young people, I would simply say this. Do not believe Teachers or professors or individuals in our society that laugh at the Bible. But say it's just a collections that have been penned by a mortal man, but it's not inspired. Do not believe that. But more importantly, investigate the claims of the Bible. Develop your own, own faith. Because you cannot live on my faith. You cannot live on the faith of the elders here. You cannot live on the faith of your family members, your parents. You have to develop your own faith. You need to know why you believe what you believe. And so it's going to take a lifetime of study. But it begins by referencing this book that we call the Bible. It is the inspired word of God. And it will make your life better. 
Let me tell you, you can look around in our society today and you see a lot of social and moral ills in our nation. I can tell you why. And I can tell you why using a three-letter word. It's called sin. People who choose to live in sin are destined for heartache. That's what the Bible says. The only way that you and I can escape the heartache and the consequences of sin are through obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ and living by this book. That's why you need to believe it. Paul said that the gospel is God's power unto salvation. The Hebrew writer said that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. If you'll practice the contents of this book, I promise you one thing, your life will be blessed. To those who are young, I promise you, if you'll follow the contents of this book, your life will be so much easier. To those who are growing older in this life, keep honoring what this book says. Because in the not too distant future, you and I will be stepping out into eternity. I know the young die. I know that the old die. And that all of us will one day walk the corridors of death. But this book has the answer to life beyond the grave. Think about this in closing. The Bible answers the questions of life. Where did we come from? The only answer is from God. What are we doing here to fear God and keep his commandments? Where are we going to eternity? There is a heaven to gain, a hell to shun. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Do you believe in the God of the Bible? Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? If you believe in the God of the Bible, in the Jesus of the Bible, then my encouragement to you would be follow what the Bible says. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you believe what the gospel says concerning the salvation of your soul? What would you need to do to become a New Testament Christian? To become a child of God? The Bible says, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. Sin is the problem of man. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. The remedy for sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Hebrews 9, verse 22. It's in Christ that we enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1, verse 7. Would you be willing to repent, turn from a life of sin? Jesus said, I tell you, nay, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then you have to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that Jesus is the Son of God. But the Bible does not stop there. The Bible says you have to be baptized into Christ. You see, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned, Mark 16, 16. And then if you'll live faithfully until death, the Lord will bestow on you that crown of life, Revelation 2, verse 10. If you're here today, you're unfaithful to the cause of Christ, why not come home? Why not come back to a loving God who has promised to forgive every sin? All you need to do is take the first step, and God will pardon every sin. Would you come as we stand and sing?